You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Welcome to Mystery Still Unsolved. Um, I'm so excited to be back here with you in my daughter's walk-in closet. That's where I record my podcast episodes. And we're going to be talking about true crime. That's what we do over here on my little speck of the podcast universe. If you're new around here, we cover unsolved cases. We cover cold cases. That's kind of my forte. We go over all of the theories, all of the suspects, and we try and figure out like who did it. Um, We also talk about paranormal things and and alien abductions, but for the most part, we we talk true crime. Um, Usually, my podcast episodes are a little bit chipper. We have some banter. We have some comedic relief, but if you follow me on Instagram, you know that I gave you a warning last week that this one is going to be a rough one. So a couple of trigger warnings before I get started out today. Um, the case that we're going to cover today um, is a crimes against children case. Um, so if that's not something uh, that you want to listen to, no hard feelings. We will see you next week. Also, another trigger warning. This is going to be um, dealing with sexual assault and sex crimes. So again, if this episode is not for you, that is totally fine. No hard feelings. Um, you can either listen to one of my 86 other episodes episodes or we can just agree to meet back here next Thursday and and don't worry about it. I get it. I'm not for everyone and every episode is not for everyone. So I totally understand. Okay. So now that we've got those trigger warnings in effect, um, I just wanted to cover um, why I wanted to talk about this particular case. Um, because if you know me, you know that I don't like to talk kids cases. They're very painful for me. Um, So the reason I decided to cover this case today is because um, I heard this case when I was a kid and it really piqued my interest in true crime and attempting to solve puzzles. Um, I have always had an interest and fascination in understanding people. I've always had an interest in human behavior. Like, why do people do the things that they do? What makes them tick? Is it nature versus nurture? Is it a combination of both? I've always just been interested in that. So I remember when my mom was in college, she had to take this class called social deviancy. Um, I think it's because she, I mean, she was going to school to be a teacher. And I just don't really understand why this class would be in the curriculum um, other than Maybe it was a class for teachers that they would learn how to identify this in their students and get them on a track to like self-healing. I don't know. Anyway, when my mom was taking this class, I was nine. And I just remember seeing the textbook, being really intrigued by it, had all these like funny pictures on it, like this guy like walking through the subway naked. And I opened it up and I just remember pouring over the pages. Like I must have read that textbook three times cover to cover. Um, After my mom was done with the class, she wanted to sell the book back to like make a little bit of money. And I begged her to keep it. Um, In the pages of the book, 
I learned about so many crazy wild things, probably things that like nine-year-olds should not be learning. It covered um, things like voyeurism. It covered, um, what else, serial killers and the signs to look out for. Uh, underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes, and even like covered homosexuality. So yeah, this is really dating me. When I was nine, it was 1999. (laughs) And homosexuality was being taught in a New York university. Like that's one of the most liberal states in America. And it was being taught as a social deviancy. My, my, my how the times have changed, right? Um, I feel like that would never be accepted nowadays. Um, Homosexuality would not be considered a social deviancy um, because I I feel like that word deviancy just like has such like negative undertones. And and, um, I just think it's interesting to see how the world has progressed, even in these, the short amount of time. Um, We as a society. We've studied, we've researched, we've learned more about all sorts of things and incorporated these findings into the way that we think, behave, and act today. And it just makes me reflect on the fact that like, I love change. I love being able to look back at things in hindsight in 2020 and see like how far we've come. Like sure, we have you know, we have a ways to go. Things are not perfect, but let's at least congratulate ourselves for the the accomplishments that we have made thus far. Um, Anyway, the main reason I wanted to discuss this case is because of my dear friend Maria. So I'm going to be dedicating this episode to my friend Maria. Uh, Maria and I go way back. We were gal pals in elementary school. We did Girl Scouts together. We did like daisies and brownies and and all the stuff, Um, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, I remember one time we had a sleepover at um girl at the girl scout headquarters and it was me maria and our good friend stephanie and this was like march 1997 i want to say and all the girls and leaders had gone to sleep but me maria and stephanie we have always been night owls and so the three of us stayed up and we were like whispering because if we talked too loud or laughed too loud our leaders would come and yell at us um And like I said, it was March 1997, and John Monet Ramsey's face was plastered on every magazine, every newspaper. Everybody was talking about John Monet Ramsey because that just happened that past September, like four months previous. And so we, as little six and seven year old girls, were trying to understand the difficult, complex adult. atrocities through the lens of our silly little brains. (laughs) And we simply cannot wrap our minds around. We cannot fathom that people could be so like bad. We almost thought that like, no, this has to be made up because kids don't die. That's like what old people do, right? And it was just such a tough pill for us to swallow because it sort of, it was like your first it was like our first force. It was the first time we were forced to sit down and like accept the concept of mortality. Um, because if kids could die, kids our own age even, because we were the same age as JonBenet Ramsey, then that meant that we could die. It meant like what was stopping something that terrible and awful from happening to us. So we talked about that for a little bit and we got really deep, as deep as like six and seven year olds could go. (laughs) Um, And soon we decided that we would just like tell scary stories. 
And I'm pretty sure I told one about Sasquatch um, because that's what I was like terrified of as a kid. I thought that as an adult, you would have to deal with Bigfoot a lot. So that was my scary story. And then it was Maria's turn. And she was the queen of scary. She told us this like creepy story about like an old woman whose dog would like always lick her hand when she was going to sleep. And then she had like heard on the radio that some psychopath had escaped the mental institution. And so she was kind of scared. So she put her hand down and let the dog lick her hand. And then in the morning, she finds her dog in the bathroom and the dog is dead. And then she was like, wait, what the heck? Who was licking my hand the whole night? And it ended up being like the the, the mental patient that escaped the hospital. And I don't know, she was just telling scary stories like that. And, and then she decided like, hey, do you guys want me to tell you one more scary story before we go to sleep? And we're like, yeah, sure. And so she begins to tell us this story about Girl Scouts at a sleepover and how they got murdered. And it was three girls and we were three girls. So I thought Maria had made up this whole thing. Like I thought she had come up with everything on the spot. And I was like, A, Maria, I'm impressed with your creativity. And B, you might want to go see somebody because I think you might be emotionally and mentally disturbed. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't until years later, and I'm talking like years, like decades that when I heard the episode covering the Oklahoma Girl Scouts murders on Crime Junkie, so that's 1997 to whenever they came out with that episode, that I realized, oh my gosh, Maria is not a sociopath. She was telling us a real story that cold in March night in 1997. And it just so happened that it was like completely parallel to what we were doing at the time. So In the end, Maria got the last laugh. So Maria, if you're listening, I know that you pop in every now and again. In honor of you, I will discuss this horrendous crime with everyone today. (laughs) Um, Before I get to it, um, let's do some housekeeping. One, if you're not already following me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, you should. Uh, There you can see pictures and sometimes videos of the cases that we cover. You can share your own thoughts, theories, opinions. Um, We have some fun banter over there. Sometimes I pop in on stories and we'll just have like a little good chat. And you can also DM me a case suggestion. And if there's enough information, it just may get covered on a future episode. (laughs) Number two, if Instagram ain't your thing, uh, good for you. I applaud you. Um, It's probably better for your brain to not be on social media. I know I have certainly gotten more stupid since I've been on social media. Um, But yeah, Instagram isn't your thing. Don't worry. I have a website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can binge my now 80 seven episodes. OMG. Uh, Speaking of which, this Friday marks my two-year podcast anniversary. So for two years now, I have sat in my daughter's walk-in closet to share these cases with all of you. I, I literally can't believe it. Oh my gosh. I feel like we need to do something. So what is the two-year anniversary gift? Like, you know, like, I don't know. I feel like it's all crap until you get to like diamonds or something. I don't know. Let's try and find it. Oh, see, yep, underwhelming. It's cotton. <laughs> okay. Uh I'm going to try and make it work. I'll make it work. Let's see, cotton. Cotton, cotton, cotton. Um, okay. I think I know what I'm going to do. 
I am going to make a post on my Instagram account at Mystery Still Unsolved. Shameless plug. Um, and if you like it and tag someone you know, you will be entered to win a cottony, <laughs> cozy throw blanket. You can wrap yourself up snug as a bug in it and listen to 87 episodes of Mystery Still Unsolved. Yes, yes, I like that. I like that. Okay, so don't forget, after you're done listening to this episode, or if you even want to do it while you're listening to the episode, just get it over with, go to my post on Mystery Still Unsolved, tag a friend or two or three, however many entries you do, like however many friends you tag, I'll count that as an entry. And you will be entered into my drawing and I will announce the winner of the luxurious luxe cottony cozy throw blanket on my next episode. Um, and three, if you like what you hear today and you think other people you know should partake of the joy that is I, um, please consider leaving me a five-star review on Apple Podcast. I would love you more than Kanye loves Kanye. And you know what? That's a lot. That's really a lot. Okay, so I already said my trigger warning, so I think that I'm all good. Um, all right. Yeah. Okay, so without further delay... Let's get into this horrendous story that is not only very, very terrible, but thankfully is not a figment of my friend's warped imagination because I would have been really concerned because I had a lot of sleepovers with that girl. So I'm glad she's not a sociopath, but unfortunately there is a real sociopath and we're going to talk about him as well. So, all right. I know that I try to keep it like really upbeat in the intro or as upbeat as I could, but we're not really going to have any more of that. So get your giggles out now because it's not going to be funny anymore from this point on. I'm going to give you about five seconds to just get all your giggles out. So go ahead. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. Good job, you little freaking weirdo. Okay. <coughs> On the morning of June 12, 1977, Doris Denise Milner's mother was, in a word, frustrated. She had spent the better half of the last week convincing her daughter, who they affectionately referred to by her middle name, Denise, to please go on this Girl Scout campout. Denise was 10 and had never spent a single night away from home. She was incredibly nervous, but at last her mom had finally been able to convince her to just try it. But now, as they stood outside of the bus, Denise was once again having second thoughts. Denise was crying and begging her mother to not make her go. She promised her mother that if, if you don't make me go this time, if you don't make me go this year, I promise next time I'll go. I promise. I promise. Denise was shy and a bit of a homebody, but her mother knew that she really wanted to make friends. Denise was just kind of like to herself and she knew that she needed this opportunity to make friends. And if Denise would simply just agree to go, her mother knew that she would have an incredible time. Denise's mom is a little fed up and I mean, they drove all this way. She's already paid for the two-week sleepaway camp. She's probably not going to get her money back. So she relents and she gets down on Denise's level and she says, Denise, if you stay one night and decide that in the morning you completely hate it, I promise I will come and pick you up. 
but you have to at least try it for one night. Denise is still scared, but it seems like a fair deal, and she agrees. She hugs her mother goodbye, and she gets on that bus. Call it intuition, call it a sixth sense, but Denise, for whatever reason, it cannot be explained why she had this premonition, but she just had this bad feeling about the camp out. And I know that if her mother knew what was going to transpire that very night, she probably would have chased down that bus and taken Denise home herself. Convincing her daughter to get on that bus that humid and muggy morning in June, she says is by far the biggest regret of her life. But she didn't know. She couldn't have known. No one could have anticipated the horrors that would unfold forever tainting the memory of this once beloved camp named Camp Scott in Mays County, Oklahoma. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about Camp Scott. So it had been there for like decades, possibly even a century. I don't even know. It was like one of those old timey generational camps. And I want you to be able to picture it in your head. So it was a huge camp and the camp was kind of like sorted into several smaller camps to make it more manageable. And each kind of like sub camp was named after like some sort of Native American word. And Camp Kiowa was the most remote, the most remote of all of the camps. And it was right on the edge of the woods and it was furthest from the front and the back entrances. And those two entrances were the only places guarded by security. All right, so back to Denise. Upon arriving to the camp, 27 girls were assigned to Camp Kiowa. That's the camp that Denise was assigned to. And those girls were then taken to Camp Kiowa and then sorted into groups of four and placed into the cabins labeled two through eight. The counselors all slept in cabin one. But when I say the word cabin, I want you to know that I'm using this term very loosely, like way in Lake Tahoe or like the Adirondacks or Park City, okay? Like think tents on a raised wooden platform, okay? Uh, There's like a flap for a door. There's not even a door on this baby. Um, There's no indoor plumbing. Uh, There's, it's, it's a meager tent, okay? Uh, Tents one through eight all had to share a restroom that was located on the outskirts of the camp about 100 to 150 yards past cabin eight. And cabin eight was assigned four little, four little girls. Our friend, Denise Milner, age 10. Lori Lee Farmer, age eight, and Michelle Heather Gousset, age nine, and Angela. I don't know how old Angela was. Um, Angela was later placed in another tent to be with her best friend. Um, The three who remained were all residents of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, a suburb of Tulsa. Surprisingly, no adult was assigned to any of the little girls' tents, so it wasn't just cabin eight that didn't have a a chaperone or an adult none of them did and I would like to think that this sort of thing wouldn't happen nowadays and perhaps it's for this very reason Um, maybe this very case made it such that when I was a little girl there was always one if not two leaders present in every single tent or cabin but in 1977 for whatever reason this wasn't done Cabin 8 was the farthest away from the counselors. So not only is this the most remote camp of all the camps, these little girls were staying in the most resort, the most remote cabin in the most 
remote camp. I don't even think any adults would want to do that. Um, so there was kind of like a semicircle of tents. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then, a, so like technically camp tent one was across from tent eight. But there was like this um, building, like a kitchen storage area that blocked the counselor's view of tent eight. So if you were a counselor checking in on these young girls, you would literally have to walk around this big A building to see site number eight. Essentially, this was like the worst cabin you could possibly be assigned to if you're an already nervous little girl. And I know as a full-grown woman, I would not want to stay in that tent. Um, Lori was the youngest of the group, but she was most possibly the bravest and the toughest of the three girls. And the way that she's described kind of reminds me of my Rylan because it didn't matter if Lori was the youngest in the group or the only girl in the group. She was not only going to do all the things that the other kids were doing, but she was going to be the freaking best at it. Um, my daughter Rylan, I am terrified of flying without another adult companion because I don't like being put in charge of like decision making. Um, so when I have to fly alone, I always bring Riley with me because she is my hype girl. She's like, come on, mom, we can do it. It's gonna be so fun. And you're gonna be so proud of yourself when it's over. Woo, let's do it. And like, seriously, everyone deserves a wing woman like Riley. And it also seems that everyone needed a hype woman like Lori too. Later that night, as the girls settled into their tents, this was before Angela was reassigned. So this is the only way that we have this information is because Angela tells it to us. And she's basically like the only survivor, even though she wasn't there when the actual incident took place. Um, the four girls were getting settled in, but one or maybe two of the girls had to go to the bathroom and the walk was kind of long and dark and scary. So all four girls decided like, hey, let's just walk together. That way, like two people aren't walking in the dark and two people are just like in this tent by ourselves. <laughs> they all just wanted to stick together for, you know, protection. Um, so as they walked, Angela later recalled that they were walking to the bathroom and they see these three flashlights in the distance and the girls watched as these flashlights in the distance got closer and closer and closer to them. And the four girls got scared and they screamed and the flashlights they had seen abruptly turned off and this scared them even more. So they ran back to their tent, not having used the restroom because they were too scared. So they were like, whatever, I'm not going to go back out there. I'm just going to hold it. And this is possibly our first sign that these girls had been watched very early on in the night. Um, at this point, the weather's taking a turn. They take Angela out of the tent, um, move her into the tent with her best friend. And the weather is just crappy. Um, it's there had been like a lot of humidity and mugginess in the air in Oklahoma. And then finally there was like this release of a downpour. The counselors sent the girls their tents. They were going to have to forego um, s'mores making and the campfire. And they were just like, you know what? How about you guys just go to your tents and write letters home to your parents just to kind of pass the time until it was time for the girls to go to sleep. No one knows for sure what happened next. But we can certainly attempt to put the puzzle pieces together. 
And like I said earlier, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The picture on the puzzle box is ugly and it's disturbing. Um, at around 1.30 in the morning, a counselor by the name of Carla, she was kind of like the lead counselor, um, she woke up to a very strange noise. Um, when asked to describe this sound later to the police, she said that it was like a grunt or maybe a groan or like a moaning. She said it didn't sound human, but it also didn't sound like any animal that she had ever heard before. And she had been a counselor for many, many years. She knew about all the animals in that forest. Um, The best way that Carla could describe the noise was that it was something between a foghorn and a bullfrog. So like that's like two different sides of the spectrum, okay? Um, So Carla got out of her tent to investigate. As soon as she turned on her flashlight and began walking to the, the forest parameter, the sound abruptly stopped. So just, she just kind of shined her light in the forest. And then she turned her light off. And the second that she turned that flashlight off, the sound began again. This frightened the counselor. But she decided, I'm going to make my rounds outside of all of the girls' tents and just make sure that everything is good and in order. And then I'll go back to bed. And she said that she did, like, she just stayed outside of the tent And she just went to go make sure nothing seemed out of place, nothing seemed out of line. And after doing that parameter search, this counselor made the decision that it was probably just some sort of weird animal in the forest. And so she decided that she was going to go back to her tent and go to sleep. And, And she says that as she was falling asleep, she could still hear that sound. It was the last sound that she heard as she rested her eyes and finally went to sleep. This is a decision that she regrets this day because she believes that it might have been the sounds of one of those girls and their final moments. Four hours later, that same counselor, Carla, uh, got up. She's an early bird. I don't understand her. But she got up and she got all of her things together to take a shower and get ready before all the little girls woke up. Probably smart. Um, She grabbed her towel, her toiletries, and she headed towards the bathrooms. You know, the bathrooms just past tent eight. As Carla walked on the trail, she noticed something odd. There appeared to be a sleeping bag right there in the middle of the trail and a girl sleeping next to it. Carla picked up her pace to investigate. Had a girl really made the decision to sleep outside? I mean, dang, that's brave. As she got closer, however, she was met with a horrendous sight. There was a girl next to the sleeping bag, but it wasn't a living one. She screamed and ran back to the tent for help. All the counselors ran to the location of the sleeping bag and the little girl. The girl was identified as Denise, one of the girls in tent 8. Another counselor ran to tent 8. It was empty. Where were the other girls? Several hundred yards away, two more sleeping bags were found, both with the bludgeoned bodies of the remaining girls. The highway patrol and police were called, and when they arrived, the girls were declared dead at the scene. The police were able to determine that not only had the girls been beaten to death and strangled, but they had all been sexually assaulted. Investigators using the information gathered from the other counselors and the other girls were able to put together some semblance of a timeline. Sometime in the night, 
someone had entered tent eight from the rear and struck two of the little girls, Michelle and Lori. There was blood all over their sides of the tent. There was blood on the cots. And you have to remember that this tent is small. These two girls were probably killed within mere seconds with just a swivel of the perpetrator's bodies. There was, however, no blood near or on Denise's sleeping cot, which led investigators to believe that either Denise had awoken during the beatings of her new friends and attempted to flee or was led out by the perpetrator to another location. Tape and rope had been used to subdue Denise before she was assaulted, beaten, and strangled. After Denise was killed, whoever had done this went back to the tent to get the other two little girls. He stuffed their bodies inside of the sleeping bags and dragged the sleeping bags several hundred yards away from tent eight. Police determined that this horrific crime had taken place sometime between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. They knew it had to have taken place after 11 because the sleeping bags were dry and as you remember, it had rained the night before, but had ended raining before 11. Another reason police knew that Denise had been the last to die and that this must have ended at least before 6 was because when police arrived, Michelle and Lori were already cold and rigor mortis had already begun to set in. But with Denise, she was actually still warm. So the killer had taken his time with her and she was probably murdered sometime within the last hour. Vaginal swabs were taken from the girls to try and get DNA, and they were able to retrieve some. But you got to remember, this was 1977, so DNA was not quite a thing yet. But thankfully, someone on this police force had had the foresight to take these swabs in hopes that they could be useful in the future. In the midst of the chaos, the counselors still had other children to care for, children who had no idea what atrocities had happened as they had slept peacefully in their own tents. Angela, the girl who was supposed to be in tent eight but was later reassigned, said that all the Girl Scouts were gathered together and told that the water supply at Camp Scott had been contaminated and that they would have to go home now. The girls were sad. I mean, it was supposed to be a two-week sleepaway camp, and they were upset that they were only able to stay one night. These young girls had no idea what had really happened, which is probably a good thing. Good call on those counselors. Um, so the girls felt that they were basically just rushed out of the camp so that the police could get to work. All 140 girls were bused to the camp headquarters where the parents were waiting. The parents obviously knew the truth, not because the camp had told them, but because they had found out on the news. So the girls were escorted off of the bus one by one, in, in essence, to take attendance. And when Angela's name was called, she remembers that she dropped her water bottle and that it had kind of like rolled under one of the, the benches on the bus. And she was kind of struggling to pick it up. And so they actually had to say her name a few times before she finally like made it off the bus. And she remembers that it was really strange. She said that when she got off the bus, she just couldn't understand why her mother and father were kneeling down on the ground weeping. And when she approached them, they just began grasping her and hugging her and just telling her how much that they loved her. And she was confused and she was like, I've only been gone one night. Like, why are they so excited to see me? And it wasn't until several years later that her parents told her the truth and finally everything made more sense. 
The parents of the victims were called either at work or at home and only told that their child had suffered a terrible accident during the night and that they had died. They wouldn't learn the truth and the details about their daughter's deaths until much later. Investigators, um, they have the scene and they have the autopsies of the little girls, but other than that, they essentially have very little to go on. But let's talk about what was at the scene. So left at the scene was nylon rope, duct tape, a red flashlight, and a crowbar. They also discovered that tent 8 was not the only tent that had been entered into that night. First off, a lot of little girls upon returning home said that they were missing their eyeglasses. Um, And then also there was a little girl, I don't know what tent she was in. I think it was like tent 6 or 5. She said that she remembered around 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. She said that she saw a dark shadowy figure outside of her tent. And she was kind of sleepy, like in a sleepy haze. And before she could really come to, she remembers that the the figure walked away. It didn't it didn't enter their tent. It just kind of was like lurking around their tent. Um, it didn't take long before the evidence that the police had started getting linked to locals. So the nylon rope that I talked to you guys about before was from a nearby farm because there was a farmer who had reported a robbery on his farm uh, about a week earlier and the police brought him in for questioning and he passed the lie detector test making sure that he wasn't involved. Um, But just to show you how angry and like volatile the people in town were about what had happened, when news got out about this farmer who like his tape was used at this crime and his rope had been used on this crime like the news outlets put this huge front story like this huge front page story about this poor farmer and they put his picture on and everything and on it it said this is the murderer this is the slayer as the days go by police get desperate um They bring in police dogs, they bring in psychics, they bring in um, local Native American tribes and hope that like some of their rituals will work. Um, The pups were not able to find anything, um, but mysteriously two of the dogs working the scene died while they were working. So one of the dogs died of um, heat stroke and then another dog after he was released from duty threw himself into an oncoming car. And this really gave people the heebie-jeebies. And they believed that whoever had done this was being protected by something. And this kind of leads us to Gene Leroy Hart. Gene had once been a local football hero. The people in the area worshipped him, whether they were Cherokee or not Cherokee. Um, And this was until 1966, when he was charged with the raping and kidnapping of two pregnant women. Even though Jean had confessed to these crimes and had been identified by his victims, there were a lot of people who just really liked Jean, and they just couldn't possibly believe that he was guilty of raping these two pregnant women. Um, He was sentenced to 100 years in prison, But the people of Mays County had always felt that their hometown football hero was being used as a scapegoat. Um, To make matters even wilder, Gene had escaped prison not only once, 
but twice. The second time, he had escaped successfully and had been at large for the last four years. Um, a lot of people in town suspected him of being a shapeshifter or being blessed with um, by the medicine men in the local area that were like protecting him from being caught. Police suspected that he was still in the area, possibly being aided and abetted by friends and family. When these tragic murders occurred, and it was realized that Jean's mother's property backed up to the camp and that he'd only grown up half a mile from this camp, you can imagine that due to the sexual crime aspect of the case and his violent sexual history, police would be even more fired up to catch Jean. Not only because he was a wanted man, like I think that they wanted to catch him anyways, but now they thought he could possibly have something to do with these crimes especially since the pregnant women he had kidnapped and raped had all been bound and restrained with nylon rope and duct tape. Modus operandi or simply a coincidence? This is just what investigators hope to figure out. But you might be thinking to yourself, Rochelle, lots of criminals and murderers use duct tape and nylon rope. It's basically two main ingredients of a bad guy kit. Well, how about this? Let's take it up one. One of the pregnant women, while being interviewed, told police at the time that as she was being sexually assaulted, Jean Leroy Hart had made these weird, incoherent, guttural sounds, almost like a grunting growl, kind of like the inhumane sounds that had awoken the camp counselor earlier the same morning the night the girls were murdered. Also, one of the pregnant women said he had taken her glasses and tried them on. Later on during the investigation, a cave overlooking Camp Scott was discovered and it appeared that someone had been, or at least at one point, had been living in there. Inside the cave, they found tape that was similar to what was used on the girls, nylon rope, women's glasses, women's underwear, and some torn up newspaper. And if you can believe it, the torn up newspaper is the kicker here. And you might be wondering, how could some ripped up, crumpled garbage newspaper be a big deal? Well, just hang on a second. Don't get your pants in the twist. I'll tell you. Okay, so the flashlight found next to Denise's body at the crime scene had crumpled up newspaper in it, probably in an effort to keep the batteries from like wiggling and jiggling. And... It was the same edition of newspaper, the same date, found in the cave. This proves that whoever was living in this cave was responsible for the death of these girls or had at least been present at the crime. Okay, how does this link to Jean? Like, great. Whoever was living there killed the girls, but how can we know with a surety that it was Jean that was living there? Well, there was a picture in the cave, a Polaroid picture of a woman. So police do a nationwide search. They get this picture put on every news outlet in the country. They are hoping that if they can find this woman, then this woman can tell them who took the picture. They end up finding out that this picture had been taken by a local wedding photographer in the area. And a photographer, um, this photographer had a contract with the prison he was part of like some sort of like 
work program so he could get free labor from prisoners who demonstrated good behavior and what you know that this very photographer had been assigned a man by the name of Gene Leroy Hart, who at the prison would develop film for him. Well, until he escaped prison. So with this news, a full-on manhunt is out in effect to find Gene. Because what was once a hunch is now a metaphorical punch in the face that this guy is most likely involved. All right, so when they finally apprehend Gene, wouldn't you know that they arrest him as he is wearing a stolen pair of women's glasses? Glasses that were at the camp. Hmm. <coughs> Let's try that again. Hmm. Yes, coincidence? I think not. Uh, the first officer who interviews Gene takes a chance. He's living on the wild side and he decides to not ease his way into the questioning like he normally would do. He stares Gene right in the eyes and says, Gene, you did it, didn't you? And Gene's response wasn't, no, of course not. Or no, I'm innocent. Gene leans in and says, you will never be able to pin it on me. I don't think this is normal response from any innocent person that I can think of. Um, like picture this. Let's let's come up with a hypothetical. Let's say you're with your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, yada, 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 and you suspect them of being unfaithful to you, okay? You say, you're cheating on me, aren't you? And they say, you'll never be able to prove it. Doesn't that or wouldn't that seem like a red flag to you? I arrest my case, Case closed, mic drop, boom chakalaka. All right, join me next week when together we'll discover. Okay, not really. But seriously, the police basically use this as an admission of guilt. They feel like Gene is almost taunting them with his response of like, prove it. <laughs> Remember Janet from <laughs> Remember Janet from the little school or like my the magic school bus, not my little school bus. The magic school bus and she's always like, prove it. That's kind of like what I think of. All right. So Gene was taken a trial and his trial was wild. Um, it was literally a madhouse. So police truly believed that they knew that Gene Hart had done these horrible murders to these little girls. But the police were not being treated as heroes. They were being treated as the villains. Police were afraid because so many people in the town felt Gene was innocent and was being used as some sort of scapegoat, was being framed. Um, during the trial, parents learned that two months previous to their daughters attending the camp, one of the counselors had found an ominous message left in an empty box of donuts. The note said, kill, 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 like written over a hundred times on a torn out piece of notebook paper. On another page, it read, quote, we are on a mission to kill the girls in tent one. And then it was signed, The Killer. The note also mentioned like Martians and alien abductions and like Native American mythology. So the counselors and their supervisors decided, you know, this must just be a joke, like albeit like a weird one, but it must just be a joke. So they just kind of like forgot about it. 
Um, as you can imagine, this made a lot of parents very upset. They felt that this information should have been disclosed to them so that they could have decided whether or not they wanted their girls to attend this camp. Um, so there's a trial, and I literally cannot believe this, but Jean was found not guilty for the murders of Lori, Michelle, and Denise. But how could this be? Well, first off, I already told you a majority of the town felt he had been framed, that all of that stuff in the cave and in the cabin where he was arrested had been planted by the police. Um, Also, Gene was a big football player, dude. He wore a size 11 and a half in shoes, but a bloody footprint at the scene was found to be nine and a half. A partial fingerprint also found at the scene didn't match Jane either. And in 1977, they were not able to use sperm to identify people. They knew that it was the same blood type as Jean. But the very fact that sperm was found present in the young girls and around the young girls was a major factor in Jean's defense. Because you see, Jean had had a vasectomy. And the, de- uh, the defense argued that because of this, it was physically impossible for Jean to be the rapist. He wouldn't have been able to leave any sperm behind. Okay, so that logic might have been hunky-dory in 1977, but I think we all know better now. Vasectomies are not done properly all the time. I can think of at least four friends who all got pregnant by their husbands after their husbands got a vasectomy. Some of those little suckers made their way through. And I'm guessing you probably know someone that this happened to as well. When Jean was found not guilty, police were interviewed by the news and asked, what will you do now? Like, how are you going to find the girl's killer? And police didn't really know how to respond other than saying, we have already identified her killer. It just so happens that justice wasn't served today. There is no point in searching for another killer when the killer has gotten away with what he has done. Some people might think that this was very hyper-focused. Like, the police were too hyper-focused on one individual and were, like, not... They were trying to, like, make evidence fit as opposed to letting the evidence guide. Um... But we're going to get into that a little bit later because I just think it's really interesting. Um, So just wait for it. Just wait for it. Okay. So while Gene was found not guilty for the murders of Lori, Michelle, and Denise, he did, however, have to go back to jail because he had escaped jail and he needed to finish the remainder of his 305-year sentencing of raping the two pregnant women. A sentence that he would soon get out of. No, no. Not because he escaped again. I don't really think he's a shapeshifter. Um, And no, not because he was released on parole, but because he actually died like just a few short months later of a heart attack during his like gym time. Um, During Gene's autopsy, it was discovered that Gene's vasectomy had never taken. It had been improperly performed, making it so that his sperm was still it still was in existence. It was deformed, but he still had sperm. And it's very likely that he could be the killer, especially because the sample taken from the girls had sperm and that sperm was deformed. In later years, when DNA evidence was much more reliable, much stronger, a DNA specialist reviewed the vaginal swabs and Jean's DNA. It was too degraded at the time to get a good read, 
But DNA testing has gotten better and better over the years, even in the last four years. And so in 2018, the parents of the girls begged the police to please, you know, retest the sample. And the sample was set out yet again. And everybody hoped with the advancements in the industry and the science, what was once too degraded could possibly work now. Okay. So that testing was sent out in 2018. And in 2022, just this past year, the results came back. And these results were shocking. Remember when douchey Jean said that they would never be able to pin these murders on him? Well, let's just say good old buddy Jean was a little bit cocky, wasn't he? But he was also a lot a bit wrong. Because in 2022, it was announced the DNA of the sample and sperm sent to the lab in 2018 strongly suggested that Hart was involved in these crimes. Based on my research, I'm a little confused as to why they're not taking this evidence as more definitive. I have a couple of theories. Um, I don't know if there was only a certain amount of DNA markers that matched Gene, and it was a lot, but just not enough to make it like definitive. So they had to technically call it inconclusive. Um, it could also be that they were able to determine that it was a Cherokee man who was living in that area, but because almost everyone is family or somehow related in this tiny town, that the DNA was just possibly too similar to too many other men in the area that they couldn't definitively say, like, this is Gene Leroy Hart's DNA, or if they were just like, okay, well, it's either Gene Leroy Hart or it definitely has to be someone within his family line. So I don't really understand. I can kind of just speculate, but those are kind of my two thoughts. Um, Let me know if you guys have any other ideas as to why they would get this result back, but still not be able to say, like, definitive. All right, so every suspect that police had, and they had eight suspects on their radar, all of these suspects have been excluded, except for one, Gene. Sadly, whatever this knowledge, whatever these tests prove or disprove, the knowledge of who did it will not bring these girls back, especially if it's Gene because he already died. We can't punish him for it. Um, These beautiful little girls who had their whole lives ahead of them. Like think of all that they might have been able to accomplish had their lives not been needlessly cut short. Um, There is a Hulu documentary that just came out and apparently Kristen Chenoweth, the very famous Broadway musical star, she was around this age living in Oklahoma and she was supposed to be on this trip. She got like some sort of like upper respiratory thing. I don't know if it was like strep or pneumonia. And her mom told her that she wasn't able to go, but she was supposed to be at this camp and she was supposed to be with this cohort of girls and, and just see what she's accomplished. I mean, she's a famous Broadway musical star. Like who, who knows what these other little girls, what their futures held in store. Okay. So now what do I think? I feel like you guys always want to know what I think. And remember, this is me standing on my little Rochelle soapbox, just sharing my opinion. Um, It's not going to be like, you're not going to be able to like take this into a court of law and have it have no holes. But like, this is just what I think. 
I think that Jean Leroy Hart is guilty. Now, what I wonder is, okay, so you say he escaped prison in 1973, and these Girl Scout murders occurred in 1977. That is a four-year period. I just cannot believe, knowing what I know and doing the research that I've done and having a degree in abnormal psychology, (laughs) I just cannot believe that Jean was able to go that long without murdering or sexually assaulting anyone. I think that there are definitely victims out there. Whether they're alive or dead, I have no idea. He might have been able to perfect his perverted craft over those four years. Um, But I feel like there are victims that are, are, are unaccounted for. There has to be. Because this man was escalating. He went from burglarizing homes to burglarizing homes when people were there to kidnapping and raping women to kidnapping, raping women and then leaving them for dead to then brutally murdering three young girls after sexually assaulting them. And these murders were done with impeccable precision. Like he was able to do all of these horrendous things while dozens of girls were sleeping mere yards away. I'm not trying to be like morose or anything, but that sort of thing requires a great deal of premeditation and practice. This is not something you would be able to do on your first try. Like this was not this person's first rodeo. I mean, like I said, you guys know I have a seven-year-old and she has friends come over. And actually, like as I'm writing this, as I was writing this, I had a little girl over for a play date. And I don't know if you knew this about little girls. Maybe you haven't had one in your house before, or maybe you haven't had one in your house for a very long time. But trying to get them to do anything quietly is basically impossible, okay? There is so much squealing. There is so much squeaking and shrieking and giggling. And oh my gosh, this guy, I don't know how, but he was able to keep three most likely terrified out of their little effing minds. These little girls, he kept them from screaming or crying while he acted out this sadistic crime. No, I simply cannot believe that this was his first rodeo. And I can tell you that I know that there are victims out there unaccounted for. I don't know how many, but like there has to be. There has to be. Maybe they're just not coming forward. Um, I also am not sure if I'm convinced that Gene acted alone. We know that he wore a size 11 and a half shoe and that the footprint found on the scene was a nine and a half. Um, But this can also be explained away, too, because a lot of people said, well, I mean, he's been on the run for four years. Um, He's living on the DL. Beggars can't be choosers. Maybe he just had to steal a pair of nine and a half shoes and just squeezed his feet in there whenever he needed to wear them. Um, Also, there was a farmer who lived like their property backed up to the camps. And he claims that he heard a lot of like foot traffic and car traffic in the very early hours the night that the girls were killed. So it's possible that he had an accomplice or somebody came to pick him up. Like, I don't know. Lori Farmer's parents um, have become social activists. 
They have essentially made it their mission to help the families of victims in honor of their late daughter. Recently, um, they were a major part of getting the Marcy Law passed in Oklahoma, and this is a law that ensures crime victims their constitutional rights within the criminal justice system. Although um, Lori Farmer's parents believe that Jean Leroy Hart is the murderer, um, no one has ever been officially charged, and this case remains open to this day, so technically it is still unsolved. Thank you all so much for joining me this week to discuss this crime. I know that this was very difficult and disturbing and heart-wrenching and sad. So I appreciate you all for hanging in there with me. Um, I always try to do my best, to be honest, but I also want to be sensitive about the details um, when it comes to these sorts of cases. There is a very delicate balance and, like, just a really thin line when it comes to covering these, but I I try my best. Like maybe it's not the best, but know that I at least try my best. Um. Yeah. Okay. It's just rough. It's just so rough. Like this, I think I cried multiple times while writing this episode because it's just really hard for me to cover uh, cases that involve children. Um, I feel like when before I had kids. I could watch these things and like, I mean, obviously I still felt bad. Like I'm not like a monster, but I feel like ever since having kids, these types of cases just like get me on a different level, if that makes sense. Um, all right. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, don't forget to follow me on Instagram at mystery still unsolved. It feels so weird to do this segue. Like I don't like it. I feel like there needs to be like a moment of silence or something. <laughs> um, okay. Um, don't forget to enter the giveaway going on right now to celebrate my two-year podcast anniversary. Um, I'm going to announce the winner next week. All you got to do is just like the post and tag a friend or two. Um, visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can binge my 87 episodes. Um, if you feel like it, you could leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to tell a true crime-loving friend or family member about me. And don't feel limited by the term friends or family. Be like Tommy Shelby from Peaky Blinders. My husband, I love that show. <laughs> and he's always like, Ada, I have no limitations. Uh, you don't have any limitations when it comes to who you tell about this podcast either. Tell acquaintances at the dog park, your personal trainer, your Uber driver, your DoorDash delivery person. I want everyone to know about Mystery Still Unsolved. But you might be wondering to yourself, Rochelle, what is the best way that we can support this podcast? I'm glad you asked. That would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>